Brother Sam, come on. We're going to give attention to the preaching of the Word of God this evening. We've asked Dr. Pastor Sam Waldron, pastor with the Heritage Baptist Church in Owensboro, Kentucky, to bring the Word of God to us tonight. We're asking him to preach not because he's Dr. Waldron, but because he is Pastor Waldron, and he loves our Savior and has been faithful over many years in serving our risen and exalted Redeemer. And we gladly give attention to you, brother. Come and bring the Word of God to us. I consider it a great honor to be asked by Pastor Self, his fellow elders, and the administrative committee of the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America to address this general assembly. I say I consider it a great honor. And I want if you would be kind enough to me to tell you why I consider it such a great honor before I come to the wonderful subject which has been assigned to me. I feel so honored first because I believe in the 1689 Baptist Confession. Some of you may be aware of that. There was an old television program, I think it was called The Defenders, and this introduction or promo, uh, they would say something like this about democracy. They would say, uh, they would say, democracy is not a good form of government. It is just so much better than all the rest. And so I say to you, we know that the Second London Baptist Confession is not a perfect nor a divine or a divinely inspired document. But I feel it about, about it the way that that program says we should feel about democracy. It's not a perfect confession. It's just so much better than all the rest. <laughs> I feel honored, secondly, because I believe in formal Baptist associations. I believe they are both biblical and historical. And this conviction is not one to which I have come lightly, but it is one to which I have come firmly. And I feel honored to address this General Assembly, therefore, thirdly, because for the reasons I have just given, I believe in Arbka. I once said to a friend of mine, Brother, if you didn't exist, we would have to indent you. And that's the way I feel about you, brethren, and about this association. If it didn't exist, we would have to invent it. But thankfully, it does exist. Now, as I have tried to digest the subject I've been assigned, I think it comes down to something like this. While we must have a passion for the glory of God in every area of church life, Now, I have a short and succinct answer to the question implied in that subject. We should have a passion for the glory of God in every area of church life because of what the Bible teaches about the identity of the church. It is what it is, and so we must do what we do. It is what it is, and that identity demands a passion for the glory of God in it, 
in every area of church life. Now, no passage speaks more pointedly to the issue of the identity of the church than 1 Timothy 3.15. And I wish you would turn there, please. 1 Timothy 3.15. First Timothy 3.15 reads as follows, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household or house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Before I come to this passage proper, I have two things to say about it by way of introduction. And the first has to do with the principle at stake. Identity, according to this passage, identity determines duty. We must do what we do because we are what we are. Identity determines duty. That three-word sentence summarizes everything I want to say to you tonight. Now, of course, this little affirmation that identity determines duty has a much broader, greater application than I will press on you this evening. It has an application to individuals. And throughout the letter of 1 Timothy, we see the application of this principle. If God gives a man a greater store of this world's good than most other men have, he has a duty different than us poor folks. And so Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The rich man's identity as a rich man determines his duty. And if a man is given the gifts to be a pastor, teacher, and called to office in a local church, that identity has an overwhelming impact on his duty. And that is why Paul says to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4:15 and 16, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Identity also determines duty in our distinctive identities as men and women. A woman, just because of her identity as a woman, has specific duties that she would not otherwise have. And it is this principle that is somehow behind those difficult words in 1 Timothy 2.15, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. But it is this principle, as it comes to expression in 1 Timothy 3.15, to which I want to point you this evening. What is Paul doing in this text? He is telling Timothy that this letter was written so that Timothy and the other Christians in Ephesus 
might know how they ought to behave in the church. And how does he inform them as to how they ought to behave in the church? He does this by telling them what the church is in its glorious identity. They ought to behave the way they should behave in the church because the church is what it is. This is why Paul gives this great and glorious three-part description of the church in this verse. The glorious identity of the church determines the weighty duty of those who are a part of it. So that's the principle in view. But by way of introduction, secondly, I want you to see not only the principle at stake, but the church in view. The church in view. Students of the Bible ordinarily distinguish between the church universal and the church local. So the question that needs to be answered as we come to this text this evening and seek to make application of it to ourselves is this. Is Paul talking about the local or universal church here? Is he talking about the church universal or the church local? And the answer is... Yes. Yes, Paul is talking about the local church. Yes, Paul is talking about the universal church. In other words, of course, he is talking about both. Why must we say that? Because on the one hand, when Paul speaks of the church of the living God, the house of God, the pillar and support of the truth, it seems clear that he cannot be talking about one single individual local church. One single individual local church, even the big church there in Ephesus, could not be all those things by itself. On the other hand, Paul says that he is writing to Timothy that he might know how one ought to conduct himself in the church. And clearly, Paul was conduct, uh, Timothy was conducting himself in one particular local church at that time. Timothy was leading the local church at Ephesus. Paul was writing to tell him how he ought to conduct his ministry in that church. Paul was writing him to tell him how he ought to behave in that church. So Paul not only is talking about the universal church here, but he must also be talking about the local church. But someone may say, that's not possible. Isn't that contradictory? No, and here's why. Each local church is an expression of Christ's universal church. Local churches are not just a nice idea thought up by some smart theologian. They are the institution of Christ Himself. They are and are supposed to be a local expression and embodiment of Christ's universal church. And thus local churches are and are to be locally what, the Christ, what Christ's church is universally. It should be the local church, an expression of that church, which is the church of the living God, the house of God, and the pillar in support of the truth. Did you know that the land upon which our nation's embassies are built in other nations is literally the sovereign territory of the United States? Our embassies in South Africa or Zambia or 
Brazil, are literally a piece of the United States. My dear brethren, your local churches are a piece of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They are a piece of His church, His sovereign territory. Well, having seen then the principal at stake and the church in view by way of introduction, I want you to look at this glorious threefold description of the church we have here. And I want you to take this to heart personally as the messengers and representatives of many local churches, local churches which are the expression of Christ's great universal church, which in some sense is embodied and epitomized and expressed here this evening at this general assembly. And first Paul tells you that you are the house or household of God. Now it is clear in our text that the term house or household, same word, is used figuratively. And there are two possible figurative meetings, which it may have here. House sometimes means family. It means that in our very passage in 1 Timothy 3 and verses 4 and 5, the one who manages his own house well is managing his family. House also sometimes means the church, then, as God's spiritual family. But house also refers to the temple to the temple of God. Turn over, please, just briefly, to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, that wonderful text on the church as the expression of God's temple in the New Covenant. Well, we read in verse 4, 1 Timothy 2, 4, "...and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men." but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual, here's our word, house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, it may be wrong to try to too closely divide between these two alternatives. Is the term house here a reference to the family of God? Is the term house here a reference to the temple of God? Perhaps it's both, but at any rate, I'm going to pull a Matthew Henry on you tonight. You know what Matthew Henry does, don't you? If the text means this, these are the nine applications of that. If the text means this, these are the seven applications of that. Well, I hope I'm not going in that direction too much, and I don't like to do that too often, but perhaps these two meanings actually supplement each other, so let's just think about the application this might have to us if here the house of God is what the rest of the Bible says about the church, that it is the temple of God. And so our first application is this, it is the glory of the local church to be the local expression of God's holy temple. That's fantastic. We have the glory each week of gathering as the temple of God to maintain the public worship of God. How can we not be passionate 
about everything that happens in God's temple. That is our glorious identity. We are a spiritual house of priesthood built up to carry on spiritual sacrifice toward God. That is our glorious identity to serve God as His priest in His temple. This means that one of your most important responsibilities is to maintain in its purity the corporate worship of God as it is appointed in the Scriptures. The church is not our house. The church is God's house. The church is God's house in the same way that the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were. And you do not have a right, you know, to rearrange the furnishings in God's house. Can you imagine? You have a new, young, bright-looking couple coming to your church, Pastor. You invite them over for dinner. And uh, your wife is running behind. You're going to help your wife. You hate to do it. But you leave them in the, in the living room listening to some nice music. And you say, I'll be back in five or ten minutes. I just need to help my wife do something. Please make yourself at home. Well, they do. And they get to looking around your living room and they say, this could be much better arranged. And when you walk back in, the blue chair is over there and the green couch is over there. And what is your reaction going to be? Who do they think they are? (laughs) I wonder, I don't wonder, I know. I know God is saying of some churchmen in our day, some churches in our day, some worship in our day, God is sitting up in heaven looking down and saying, Who do they think? They are. It's my house, and it's my tent, and you worship me my way. (laughs) And this whole matter of the regulative principle, of course, applies not just to worship. It applies to the government of our churches. It applies to those specific tasks that God has committed to the church. That God has not committed to the church to become a political party. God has committed to the church the Great Commission. And though we ought to speak to our nation, and though it's all right for private Christians in our churches, if they want to, to start political parties, the church is not to become a political party or a political entity. The church is the church. What it is, is the house of God. But let us suppose that Paul means here what he certainly teaches elsewhere. That the church is the family of God. That means then that it is our glory to be the family of God. And again, there is here both identity and duty. You are the people who can call God Father. What grace. What wondrous love. What mystery divine. The old hymn writer says, we can call God Father. How much we should love Him. How much we should love each other. But what kind of family of God should you be? Perhaps it will help you to think about this if I put it this way. What kind of family of God does America need to see? 
What kind of family of God does our country lost, corrupt as it is? What kind of family of God does our country need to see? My dear brothers and sisters, they need to see a loving family. First, last, and in the middle, we must love each other as Christians. <laughs> and though it is corny as all get out, it's the truth. What the world needs now really is love, sweet love, Christian love. <clears throat> I grew up a fundamentalist, so don't, don't think I was a former hippie. That's not what I was. <clears throat> what the world needs really is somebody to show them what love is. What the world needs is somebody to show them love. They see conflict enough. They see tension enough. They see hatred enough. What we need to show them is love. That's what a family does. It loves each other. You want to grow? See souls saved? By this, says Jesus, all men shall know that you are my disciples if you love one another. They also need to see, they also need to see a well-ordered family our nation's families and our nation's culture is, is, is not only uh, full of conflict and tension and hatred, it is full of awful chaos. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Well, let's see. That depends who I count. Let's see. I have two by my mom and dad and three by my dad and four by my mother. And then she had a previous husband that... Uh, that's, that's not an unusual story in our country, sadly as it is. Our nation needs to see a well-ordered family, a loving family, a well-ordered family. What disastrous confusion, disorder, and chaos there is around us in the world. And we know why, don't we? James 3.16 tells us why. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And I press this whole matter of being a well-ordered family on you with great confidence because this is the emphasis of the context in, in this very context on the family. What kind of house must the deacon, what kind of house must the elder have? He must be one, says Paul in verses 4 and 5, who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? 1 Timothy 3.12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and, and good managers of their children and their households. Well, if deacons and elders are to have well-ordered families, then I think the church should be one too. What does it take to have a well-ordered family? Diligent and loving leadership by the father. Respectful and humble submission by the wife and children. And without this, there will be chaos, and the world will not see a family that reminds them either of the great God of love or the great God 
of order. Order is, is heaven's first law. Well, it's right up there with love, of course. The church, this is us identity, and this is the identity that determines its duty. The church is the house of God. The church is also the church, and you are the church of the living God. Now, the words, which is, which is the church of the living God, precede this description, and they are emphatic, I think, in the original. The house of God is, in other words, nothing other, nothing else, nothing less than the church of the living God. And this emphasis, which is the church of the living God, gives significant weight, significant weight to this second description of the church. The term church, you know, means literally the called out ones. But in usage, it also means just as much the gathered around ones. The church is those called out and those gathered around God in Jesus Christ. The church of Israel was constituted at the day of the church in the wilderness when they gathered around God at Mount Sinai. So the church is those called out and gathered around God in Jesus Christ. The word alludes, of course, to those wonderful redeeming acts of God whereby in eternity He unconditionally elected a people which He redeems and then calls in history. And so the great classic passage on these wonderful works of God is one like 2 Timothy 1.9 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to His own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. From all eternity. But this word church does not refer to saved people as a motley, disorganized, informal group of Christians. The Greek word for church was in fact usually used of a formal and organized assembly. This is true whether you go back to its Hebrew background or into its Greek background. Both the Jewish and the Gentile background of this word show that these, this church is a formal kind of assembly. The term church was, as you know, used of the formally organized assembly of Israel in the Old Testament. It was also used of that, uh, of that assembly of voting, voting citizens in the early Greek city-states when they formally assembled together to conduct city business. In both cases, in both cases, whether you go to the Hebrew or to the Greek background, in both cases, the church was a definite organized assembly for which there were qualifications of membership, over which definite officers were appointed, to which individuals could be added, and from which and from which persons could be excluded. It is the church. And we must stand for the church in our day. We must be the kind of church that tells what of those evangelical organizations or organisms are around us, that church means formal assembly. Amorphous groups of people with only the most informal commitments to one another are not all that churches are supposed to be. 
The church in the Bible is an organized assembly. And that's a great truth which we have to offer our fellow Christians in this nation and for which we must stand. But it is the prepositional phrase of the living God which distinguishes the church of which Paul is speaking from all other human organizations and assemblies. The church of which Paul is speaking is the church of the living God. In order to understand that, you've got to think back to that passage that Pastor Self read to us this evening. You don't need to turn there. It's Psalm 115 if you want to. But it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. Why should the nations say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. What is the point? That these gods are dead. What says Paul? Our God is alive. And He's here when you worship. It is the church of the living God. If the church did worship a dead idol, if it gathered in the name of a mere mortal... Men might, might assume to dominate, regulate, parade themselves in its gatherings. But it is not. It is the church of the living God, dominated by Him, regulated by Him, centered around Him. And so He demands to dominate its gatherings. He demands that His presence should be acknowledged and made, made the central attraction of its gatherings. He is alive. He has a mouth and He can speak. And He demands that His Word be proclaimed and heard in its gatherings. He has ears. And thus He demands that all that be said be said with the thought that God is listening he demands as well that His people praise and pray in spirit and truth, remembering that His ears accept the praise and His nose smells the worship. The living God has a nose to smell the incense, the sweet incense of true worship, and also to sense the foul odor of profanity and formalism in worship. He has hands and feet, says the psalmist, which move with power and life. He demands, therefore, that the gatherings in His name of His people might be characterized by both holy fear and confident trust in His might and power. 
This is what the church is. It is the church of the living God. And the way we worship should have this goal, as Paul says, when an unbeliever comes in, after he sees our worship and the Spirit works, he should fall down and say, Surely God is in your midst. Uh, His reaction should be that of Jacob. Surely God is in this place. And I knew it not. We are the church of the living God. That is our glory. That is our our wonder. That is the greatness of the church of Jesus Christ. And if we believe that, we we are some sort of strange creature if we can believe that and not have a passion for the glory of God in every area of church life. And so I say, dear church of God, it is your privilege and glory to be the church of the living God. To you is fulfilled the words of Jesus, where two or three gather together in my name, there am I in the midst. Among you, the risen and glorious Savior walks when you gather. You you know then that it's not just the living God, but that living God as He has become flesh and died and been raised as the last and second Adam who walks in your midst. And this is how the last book of our Bibles begins, you remember. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Can we believe that that's true and have anything else or less than a passion for the glory of Jesus Christ in every area of our church life? If we can, there's something wrong with us. But the text tells us that in the third place, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Paul here describes the church as the pillar and support of the truth. Uh, The first word, stulos, refers to the kind of pillar used in ancient architecture to support the roof. I suppose the kind of pillars that held that temple up, which Samson pushed down. The second word, Hedrioma refers to the foundation of an entire building. And thus, Hendrickson Wells says, as the pillar supports, even better, note the climax, as the foundation supports the entire superstructure, so this church supports the glorious truth of the gospel. We think of our White House, the the residence of our presidents, and there you see both of these things. You see those Pillars supporting the massive front porch of the White House. And under it, you know, there are these vast foundations supporting the entire house. That is what the church says, Paul. It is the pillar and support of the truth. 
Now, of course, we must not understand this as Roman Catholics do. It is no vindication of the claims of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism, on the basis of this text, teaches that the church guarantees the truth by its own authority, that the truth is actually built on the church, the Bible on the church, and not the church on the Bible. But the Scriptures make plain that this interpretation is wrong. The truth is not built on the church. The church is built on the truth. And so says Paul in Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so the point of our text is, of course, not that the church in some Catholic sense guarantees the authority of the Word of God. It is exactly the opposite. The Word of God guarantees the authenticity of the church. But the point of our text is that it is the function of the church to support the truth in the world. In other words, the church is to teach, exemplify, defend, promote, promulgate, and bear witness, and generally hold up the truth to view. Paul's description of the church as the pillar and support of the truth is strengthened by the fact, I think at least it's strengthened by the fact, that the word the is not there. It is not that the church is the pillar in support of the truth. It is that, says Paul, the church is pillar and support of truth. Why is that significant? Because I think Paul is emphasizing, Greek grammarians might argue the point, but I think Paul is emphasizing that this is the very identity and nature and characteristic of the church. What is church? What is the church? It is pillar and support of the truth. That is, in other words, its very nature. Its very nature is that it is house of God and church of the living God and pillar and support of the truth. And so, this third description teaches us that it is your glory and responsibility as a church to hold up the truth in the world. To hold up the truth to sinners, to hold up the truth to believers, to hold up the truth to the family, to hold up the truth to our nation, to hold up the truth in the world. And I want to say two things about that. First, I want you to remember what truth it is we're talking about here, because Paul goes on, of course, to identify it in verse 16, doesn't he? By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What is the truth? It is He. That's the truth. The answer is the one Jesus gave when He said, I am the true way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. The truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth is the doctrine of the gospel. The truth is not just doctrine. It is a person. It is a crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see, our danger is twofold. It is possible on the one hand, when we talk about holding the truth, to become too abstract and doctrinal. On the other hand, it is possible you come too narrow when we talk about Jesus being the truth as if it's just what the Bible says directly about Him that is the gospel, that is the truth. In our minds then, we have this 
uh, this minimizing mentality where we reduce the truth to a few simple ideas about Jesus to a kind of uh, perhaps Reformed Baptist for spiritual laws. That doesn't go in one sentence, does it? Perhaps it will help us to remember that the message of all Scripture is Jesus Christ. The center of Scripture is Jesus Christ, and all of Scripture, right down to its edges, is about Jesus Christ. We must interpret all of Scripture in a way that is centered on Christ, but we must not depreciate any part of Scripture because it's all about Christ. We must not depreciate any part of Scripture as if that part of Scripture had nothing to do with Christ. Everything the Bible teaches is important to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth is the Jesus Christ of Scripture. But there's a second thing I want to say to you about your glory and responsibility as a church to hold up the truth in the world. I want you to remember what your commitment to the church means about your commitment to the truth. You're being a pastor of a church, you're being a member of a church means that you will help it in every way you can to stand for the truth and to hold up the truth. That is what you are, pillar and support of truth. You are saying when you join a church, you are saying when you identify yourself with a church, I will not hide anymore. I will not be silent anymore. You are saying, I will not be ashamed anymore. I will stand in my life and in every opportunity God gives me for the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Perhaps it will help you remember that your commitment is not simply to a set of doctrines. It is to Him. Who am I that in my place the Lord should take frail flesh and die? But He did. And your commitment is to Him and to the truth in Him. You have a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, which requires that you stand up for Him in your churches. I'm a very cautious person by nature. I think I can probably say too cautious. I do not take risk easily or unnecessarily. It is hard for me to cast off the restraints of a reserved nature. But being part of Christ's church requires it of me and of you. It requires a fearless, yes, and a reckless, yes, and an incautious commitment truth. Do you have that? You must have that. And if you have that, you will have a passion. You won't be able to avoid it. A passion for the glory of God in every area of church life. Well, that's what I had to say this evening. Here is why, you see. Here's why we must have. We must never give up. We must always hold on to. We must keep going in. A passion for the glory of God in every area of church life. We must do that because the church is what it is. We must do that because of the identity of the church. 
We must do that because the church is house of God. Church of the living God. Pillar and support of the truth. Once recognize this identity. And we must and will become more and more like our Lord when He braided those cords and drove out of God's temple all that offended His Father. Zeal for the house of God will consume us too. There is that wonderful hymn. Hymns say it so often better than I can. And it says, I love Thy kingdom, Lord, the house of Thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with His own precious blood. I love Thy church, O God. Her walls before Thee stand, dear as the apple of Thine eye, and graven on Thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, for her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Let's pray. Father, we come to confess in Your Son and with the confidence of forgiveness in Him that we have not maintained. We have known. We cannot deny that we have, but we have not maintained as we should, and we have not had to the degree that we should have had a zeal for Your house that consumes us. But we ask that You would come and in the reflection upon the great truths of Your Word, about what the church is, about who Jesus Christ is, that in these reflections You might come and restore to us a passionate and consuming zeal for Your glory in every area of our church's life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.